Well, hello again, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm well, Mr. Heppel. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. Hey, good, we're uh, really, uh, really looking forward to our conversations here and the life of times of Todd Van Beck. And your, your one about Reverend Dr. Jackson was uh, you know, really fitting and I think really uh, touched you quite a bit. I'm glad we were able to capture capture that. Where Today, where, where are we going to uh, focus on? of the the journey well i thought it might be appropriate to just kind of tie off the ambulance service time because uh, it was such a integral part of my career uh, and then i thought we would talk about uh, mortuary college a little bit and graduation and then moving on uh out uh out west and just cover a few of those subjects that might be of interest to your listeners. Great. Let's. Uh, well, you just jump in where 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 you want to take off from. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I wanted to uh, and thank Rob for uh, opening this up again. I wanted to go back and revisit some of the ambulance uh, uh, issues. Um, I, I, I wanted to leave the impression and emphasize how integral the idea was of combining funeral and ambulance service uh, for, for decades in this country. There was no paramedics, there were no emergency medical technicians. And so what we see today uh, rolling around are these mobile hospitals uh, is uh, relatively, frankly, relatively a new uh, innovation in uh, ambulance care uh, given over the last 100, 125 years. So I wanted to just go back and share a couple thoughts about the ambulance. And I hope that your listeners will give me some indulgence on this. The, the ambulance stuff, the ambulance experiences were, were for, for most of my career, were not hospital transfers, right? We did hospital transfers, but the bulk of my work on ambulance was what they would call crisis emergencies, where uh, this was not just picking up a patient, uh, taking the patient to a nursing care center. We did that, of course, but I wanted to, uh, and there were a couple incidences. And for those listeners who have actually worked on ambulance services, uh, this probably will not come as uh, anything out of the twilight zone. But for people who have not uh, worked intimately with ambulance work, uh, these these uh, reminiscences that I wanted to share, and I've picked two of them that I felt were uh, significant. Now, we had automobile accidents, we had homicides, we had shootings, we had people falling off buildings, we had men beating their husbands up, we had wives beating their husbands up, we had child abuse, we had, you name it, it came it came uh, across the desk with the uh, uh, the ambulance service. There, nothing was immune from it. And in fact, we had some people would call us up to pick them up to go get their groceries. Uh, we had one lady 
called the ambulance, uh, got to the house, and she had a basket full of laundry. She wanted us to drive her to the laundromat uh, to get her so she could do her laundry. All right, so uh, there, it was it was uh, all over the place, and people were people. Uh, honest to Lord, some of the decisions, um, and I'm not saying I make perfect decisions by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the situations people uh, found themselves in was unbelievable. But the two uh, cases that I wanted to share with your listeners was this this kind of netherworld uh, that sometimes happened on ambulance and also it happens sometimes in funeral service where the environment that you're dealing with is such a clouded reality of life, right? So what you see on TV, of course, uh, concerning funeral service or concerning even ambulance work is really very artificial. Right, uh, the Hollywood producers and directors and actors—they have—they have never actually, I, in my opinion, uh, hit upon the DNA of the uh, the depth of funeral service or the depth of ambulance work. And let me give you two examples of this. We we were out in the garage one day and we were cleaning cars up, and. Um, the phone rang in the garage and it was our boss and he said this we just i just got a call from a little girl who said her mother has fallen down the stairs and they need the ambulance and he said i got the address and he said go on over there and he said and just see see what it is um and and those were those kind of calls were not unusual where all we would get is an address, particularly if a child was calling, right? Remember now, 911 didn't exist, right? There was none of this. There were no cell phones. There was no texting, right? You called the funeral home for the ambulance. Um, and so we went over there. And in the meantime, our boss had called the police department. And we, of course, had a head start on the police department. And so when we got there, we're banging on the door. The, the police shows up and the police come up and they start banging on the door. Nobody's there. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, started really pounding on the door and we thought we could hear a faint cry from inside the house. And as we, uh, the police then knocked the door in because they had, I guess, probable cause. And, uh, and as you went into the corridor, there was a stairway that went up to the second floor, but there was a door that went down the basement. And we opened up the basement door, and by golly, down at the bottom of these stairs was this old lady. And she had fallen down these stairs, and she was flat on her back and couldn't move. And I remember we went down, uh, we had a portable cot and the cops were there and the cops, the cops knew about the kid uh, that had called for the ambulance. And uh, he leaned over and he said, where's the little kid at that called for the ambulance? 
And the old lady looks at him, says, I, there's no little kid here. And he said, well, it was a little girl. And uh, the lady looked and said, well, there's no little kid here. She said, my daughter died in 1935 of uh, some childhood illness. And the cops looked at me and I looked at them and my boss was not a dishonest person. I mean, he would, uh, how in the world would you possibly make a story up like that? And I tell that story to give a level of depth and substance to this world of crisis management and that no textbook could ever possibly uh, ever possibly address that. It was one of the most, um, I guess you would say ethereal, but also spiritual experiences uh, of, of my career. It, it was stunning. I mean, we were absolutely in total silence uh, driving that ambulance back to the funeral home. And my boss, who was certainly a veteran funeral professional, when we told him about it, he looked at us and he just brushed that off. And he said, we've had that stuff happen before. And so people that are on the front lines of this stuff, they will, they all, in my experience, have these stories about this nether world, this netherland type of uh, situation. I'll tell you one more and then we'll move on. Um, we got an ambulance call one night that there'd been a car accident out on a highway between where I had my funeral homes and Cedar Rapids. Now there were all kinds of little towns that dotted this town or this county as you know, in Iowa, you can't go five miles in any one direction where there's not a little town. And they, they set it up that way because you could ride a horse from uh, from your farm into town and back in a day if the trip was uh, five miles, right? That was how they set it up. Uh, so anyway, we go out there, and uh, some of your listeners have been to Iowa. Iowa's not flat at all. People think Iowa's flat. Iowa is hilly, right? It's hill, big hills and dales and valleys, etc. So we get this call. The Iowa State Patrol's out there, and the the crash was at the bottom of this valley, where two hills came down, and these uh, and I had buried. Uh, let me rephrase it. I had buried this boy's grandfather the year before. Their their names were Becker, and they were from a little town called Norway, Iowa. And uh, I had done the funeral for the grandfather. And so, <clears throat> so we go down into the valley and the car had caught on fire. And the car had burned from the engine back and it incinerated the driver, but the fire had extinguished itself before it got to the back seat where this young boy, this young man was. So this young man was married and he had several children. And so we pulled him out of the car, he's still alive. It was about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. The lights were flashing all over the place. And we put him on and he was in such bad shape that we didn't take him to Cedar Rapids. We shot him right to Iowa City to the University Hospital.
And that was the end of it, right? And so maybe a week later, uh, I get a call from the university hospital that this young man has died and that the family wants, wants me to uh, take care of the funeral for them. I remember going over to their farmhouse. And as I went in and I'm driving over, and anybody that's in funeral service that's been through this, you know, you, they know the drill. I'm driving over there and I'm getting prepared. Here you've got a young widow with children. Her husband's just been killed and uh, her, the parents will be there. And this could be a tough environment. This could be uh, a, a, a high drama, high grief grief dramas, uh, and appropriately so. Uh, nothing artificial with that, see. So I went in there, and the the widow answered the door. Now, I had met her on the grandfather's funeral. And she opens the door, and she goes, oh, hi, Todd. Oh, thank you for coming over. She said, it's so good to see you again. And I'm looking around, and his parents are at the dining room table. The kids are playing with toys. It was Christmas time. It was about this time of the year. And um, she was absolutely um, pleasant. She was almost cheerful. And so it, I remember it kind of took me off guard, right, because I was preparing myself that this was not going to be a cheerful environment. So, so we sat down to the dining room table, and her father was there. I had buried his dad, and we started talking. And finally, the widow, she's 23 years old, she leans over, puts her hand on my hand, and said, you're surprised at how we're all acting, aren't you? And, you know... What, what was I going to say? It was the God's truth, right? I mean, there's no way to fake that one. Uh, I mean, my body language would, would betrayed me, right? And I said, well, yes, I am a little bit surprised. And she looked at me and she said, well, I knew he was going to be killed. And with that, I just took my folder and just shut it because, <laughs> I mean, this is much more important than getting a social security number, right, or filling out a damn vital statistic sheet. And I said, you, you knew, she said, yes, she said, since I was a small child, and I don't mean now here to offend any of your listeners that I'm not here to proselytize anything. I'm just telling you a case on the ambulance, mm -hmm. right? And she said, since I was a little child, Jesus has spoke to me. She said, even when I was a child, three, four years old, I would look up and there he would be. And he would tell me things and he would talk to me. And she said, you know, she said about three weeks ago, she worked at the Amana refrigeration plant. Now, that's been out of business. It's Whirlpool now. But Amana Refrigeration, they invented the microwave. And it was down in the Amana colonies, which was a little bit south of Norway, Iowa, and where I had the funeral home. And she said, I was doing the dishes. She said, my husband was working the night shift. And she said, and Jesus came to me 
and said, go quit your job. She said, quit your job now and spend as much time with your husband as you possibly can because I'm going to take him. And I'm telling you, Rob, it was verified. She quit her job three weeks. She quit her job three weeks before this accident and then it got even more um, interesting. She said, I saw you that night at the accident. And I mean, I'm, I, I'm just sitting there at the dining room table. I said, you saw me. She said, yes. She said, I was sitting in the chair watching TV and Jesus came to me and said, there's been an accident and here's where it's at. And she said, I parked my car at the top of the hill. And she said, I could see down all the red lights. And she said, I saw you pull that ambulance in. And I saw you take my husband out of the car. And she said, and I saw you put him in the back of the ambulance. And she said, and then I turned around and I went home and waited for the sheriff to call or the highway patrol about this accident. It was absolutely one of the most fascinating uh, experiences of my career. Um, and this woman, uh, this young lady, was uh, at total peace, absolutely at total peace with this situation. This wasn't phony. Uh, I did not pick up any insincerity from her. Um, and as I, I remember, and we did the funeral, they were Roman Catholic, so most the Norway was a heavily Catholic community. And the mass was a celebration, right? There was uh, here this young man uh, at the prime, uh, young 25-year-old is taken. And, and this, this story was verified because even the sheriff said, that when he got to the house to tell her about the accident, that she then relayed to him that she'd already seen it. And uh, nobody had notified her at all about anything to do with this, uh, with this accident. So I thought I would end my little epistle on the ambulance service by sharing this, that there was a lot more to this than what meant the eye. There was a lot more behind the funeral home ambulance service than red lights and driving fast and driving big fancy cars. And anybody, I will repeat it, that has worked on the ambulance, they can tell the most hilarious stories on the face of the earth. Uh, they can tell the most horrifying stories on the face of the earth, but all of them would have stories such as I've just relayed to you about that. So, so, so Todd, did did you ever hear from her again, or no? I did. I sold I sold her a monument, and the, about six months later, the monument had been set, and I picked her up, and uh, and I don't mean to be uh, anticlimactic, or I don't mean to be overly dramatic about this. But as we went to the, and she, you know, he was a race car guy. He liked race cars, you know, kind of that Iowa, 
uh, person, you know, like the, uh, uh, not bumper cars, but uh, uh, demolition derbies. That was what it was, what it was called, where they just beat the hell out of each other with their cars, just slamming into each other. Hell, the crowd loved it, right? And, um, and so I took her to the cemetery and we put a race car on the monument. We put, I don't know, checkered flags. We got all this kind of cool stuff on the monument. And we're sitting there and I said, how are you doing? And, and now I'm pleasant, right? Because I'm not expecting her to crack up over this. And, and she said, I'm doing fine. She said, uh, Jesus has already told me who uh, my next companion in life is going to be. I mean, I, I mean, she just, she just, she just was unbelievable with the stuff that she would come up with. And she was a normal Iowa house, a mother. I mean, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't somebody that we were taking to the 12th floor of the university hospital of uh, the psych ward. She was, uh, you know, very charming young lady, and and, and I, I've often wondered what happened to those folks, but I've of course lost touch with them over the years. So, so that person then wasn't you. We can confirm that. No, 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 no. no I now, no, no, no. you probably don't know the answer to my question, but I would wonder if she relayed that message to her husband when he only had three weeks to live? You know, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question before. I've told this story in grief seminars uh, a thousand times, and particularly I've told this to clergy seminars that I do. And uh, I don't, there's no scoffers with the clergy when you start to tell uh, these, uh, these uh, reminiscences. Uh, some of the public, I think, are scoffers at it, but I, I just never had the luxury of, of doing that with uh, these situations um, because there was something going on there that I didn't understand. I didn't need to understand it. I just had to serve serve the client uh, the best I could. But, yeah, I, I, I think it would be interesting <laughs> to know whether or not uh, she shared that with him. Uh, but the sequence of events was haunting. That's the word for it. Mm -hmm. It was haunting, right? On both, on both the old, the old lady and the little girl and the car accident, they were both haunting. Well, in regarding the little girl, did anyone ask the lady about the? I, like I know you mentioned, she had said that um, her daughter had died some time ago, but did the, anyone? The cops did the did the police say to her? Well, we got a phone call from a little girl about this. Like, yeah, did, oh sure, did they, we did, we did too. Did and, like did the and, lady and, and, wonder? Like, how did how did you guys know oh, about her I falling? I, well, I can't answer that because she was in such a distressed situation, right? That she was. Our, our goal was to get her out of there and get her to the hospital. That was the other side of running the ambulance was that so much, particularly in a city, right, was so much of this ambulance work, we never found out what happened uh, to these individuals. We didn't even find out if they had died sometimes, right? I mean, if, the, if it was a car accident or something, the medical examiner's office would call to get a, te uh, get a statement from the ambulance people that were on the scene. 
but you know that was uh, and i still think that's probably uh, the way it is that it's hard to follow up uh, with that but i remember the police said where's your little she said a little uh, the, the police said a little girl called and the woman just shook her head and said and then they said do you have a daughter do you have a child here she said no my daughter died in 19 in the 1930s and that was a showstopper we just every you know okay so now it's time to get her on the cot and get her upstairs and get her to the hospital you know? yeah she then wasn't in a state to ask the question how did you know that i felt like well we weren't in the state to do it either yeah right there was an urgency to get going on this thing because she obviously laid there uh way too long as it was right when when we finally figured this all out so just just some anecdotes about that wow yeah i don't know how to summarize this this episode but just you know interesting to hear those experiences and and to i think it's a good way too to separate our current day vision of ambulance service and EMTs versus what what it was like back then. Yeah, it was, you know, I look back at my career and I wonder sometimes why I was, uh, uh, why I was destined to work in funeral service in the major massive transition as the ambulance service was diminishing and EMTs were picking it up, I was, we were smack in the middle of that, that Medicare and Medic was now starting to pay for ambulance trips. You know, instead of a $25 ambulance trip, you could charge $250, right? Or you could charge, and now they're charging $5,000 for an ambulance trip. And the other one that just fascinates me uh, which I, which causes me distress at times, is why was I destined to be in the funeral profession when this massive, massive nonstop change has occurred in our profession from the funeral being the essentials of a funeral now being replaced by the accessories of a funeral, uh, that now instead of three-day funerals, uh, rituals and ceremonies it's abbreviated maybe down to three hours um, instead of the body being the center uh, it is uh, the experience now uh, instead of the center being the uh, the the dead body and what the dead body represents it's now this celebration and this uh, we a party, uh, a social gathering, et cetera. And I'm not judging any of it, right? But I, I've gone to bed at night wondering why I was destined to be here at this time with this stuff. Uh, because the ambulance service, it just was, you know, it changed, uh, changed within five years. Within five years, there were funeral homes just getting out of it left and right, left and right. And and with good reason, right? The liability of it was just staggering. Um, the compliance issues of getting paid, if you, you know, if, if you didn't have this equipment, you weren't going to get paid. Um, and, you know, when the government became more 
uh, involved with it. So it's, I don't know, you know, uh, my uh, management professor, Dr. Deming, always used to say that the manager's job is one thing, and that's dealing with change. And when he said it, I didn't like it at all, right? Because one of the things that attracted me to funeral service was how stable it was, right? You get the call, this is what you did, right? Now, of course, those days are long, are long gone, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I, and you know what, uh, appropriately so, right? The c cultures change, and people are going to care for their dead in a consistent manner with how they live their life, right? I mean, no, no funeral organization can uh, 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 change that, right? That is the marketing divine order of things that if you want to understand funerals or the lack thereof or just look how people are living day to day, right? Uh, you get a McDonald's number two in 15 seconds, um, they're going to march right into the funeral home uh, with that uh, mindset, that lifestyle. So, you know, I'm not a purist with it at all, uh, but I do wonder sometimes, I've often thought I, I would have made a great civil war embalmer, right? I often have thought that I would have been, a, I should have been in funeral service, I think, from the year 1890 to around 1950, right? Before Mitford, before all of the, uh, before, you know, all of that stuff. But anyway, that's just when you're the, the the undertaker, where and it didn't change yeah, yeah. for that five yeah. or six decades. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I thought about that, but <laughs> that's just because I'm getting older, you know. But, so anyway, well, oh, that's great, Todd, and just uh, it's just good to to hear these stories. What are we going to look at next? Well, uh, we're going to talk about graduation uh, from mortuary school, and then uh, there was a an issue that came up in Boston uh, that uh, kind of changed things, and I thought that that would be um, uh, interest. Great. So uh, let's uh, we'll in, uh, we'll cover those next time, Todd, and okay, uh, sure. just wrap wrap up this episode and we'll uh, look forward to the graduation and uh and leaving boston so thanks okay, again great. todd for sharing this it's always a pleasure and i think it's very enlightening and this one a little bit intriguing too thank you